So the fairy tale is the bones. And that's, that's the skeleton, the framework that I'm working with. Um, but then in a retelling, uh, I think the author's job is to start asking all, all the questions. Why did the character respond this way? Um, what was compelling him or her to act in that manner? Um, and creating a whole bunch of backstory that may or may not actually make it into the book, but helps me understand my characters. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Emma Fox is the author of The Carver and the Queen, an historical fantasy novel based on the folklore of Siberia. In this episode of the Habit Podcast, Emma and I talk about piano lessons, teaching and mentoring young writers, and how she got interested in Slavic folklore, among other things. Emma Fox, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today to talk about your new book, The Carver and the Queen. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, all right. Tell me about this book. Tell me or tell me what your sort of elevator pitch is. When people ask you, what's this book about? What's the short version of The Carver and the Queen? Sure. Um, it's a historical fantasy for ages 12 and up, and it is set in the Ural Mountains, and it's based on Siberian folklore. I tell people it's a lot like the silver chair, but set in Imperial Russia. And that's uh -huh. not because I was trying to imitate C.S. Lewis's silver chair per se. It's just that so many of the elements of the mythology of that area um, have some of the same themes. Hmm. So there's the a kind of underland and all that kind of stuff. Yes, there's an underworld. There's a sinister serpentine enchantress. Um, so, but silver chair is what more people are familiar with Siberian folklore, not as much. Yeah. Okay. That was very elevatory. What, give me a little more. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, it's about, uh, two teenage artists. Okay. Um, so I've got Peter, he wants to be a stone carver of Malachite, uh, the Ural's most treasured gem and his best friend, Lena, um, also dreams of being an artist, although as a woman, nobody's ever heard of a, a woman stone carver in her village. Uh -huh. They are trying to help each other and win their freedom from serfdom. Um, but their plans fall to pieces and Peter makes a deal with the queen of the underworld. Um, she promises to give him incredible skill, but he ends up trapped in her underworld and it's up to Lena to rescue him before Peter's lost forever. Okay. Okay. Is he only sane for one hour a day? Is that how that works? <laughs> not quite like that. Okay. So he isn't it's not that much like the silver chair. Okay. No. Um, Siberian folklore. This isn't, uh, you grew up in, I think, Savannah, Georgia. Now you live in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, not a lot of Siberians in either of those places. Uh, how did you get interested in Siberian folklore? Um. Through the merging of two strands. Um, okay. First of all, when, when I was four, my parents gave me a book of stories from the ballet. Uh -huh. And one of those stories um, was by Sergei Prokofiev. It's the story of the stone flower, um, which is based on Siberian folklore. I loved that story as a little girl. I read it so many times. Um, and I also, I love the fairy tale section at our local library. I just wow. read fairy tales from all over the world, kind of yeah. starting with Grimm's and Perot, but then expanding. Um, 
I love Russian fairy tales. I love the way that the uh, female protagonists um, are often very smart and take an active role right. in the stories. And just often these elements of, they can be a little darker, um, uh -huh. but these elements of mystery and magic, these shapeshifter trickster characters, you're never quite sure um, what to expect from them. I liked that. Um, and when I knew I wanted to pursue fairy tale retellings as an author, Mm -hmm. I was looking for to go beyond the like Cinderella sleeping beauty. Um, the tales that have been retold by so many authors. So very well, I yeah. wanted something that not many people were doing. Yeah. At least like not people involved. in this country. Correct. Yes. Okay. So, right. If you um, are in Russia or um, I've talked to some of my Ukrainian friends, people in, in Slavic countries, they're very familiar with these tales. Yeah. Um, but in, in the West, in the United States, in the UK, not so much. Yeah. No, I love those. Uh, the, I love the stories that are a little, the stories, whether they're historical events or fictional stories, folklore or whatever, that are that are less familiar. They feel like they, they, they give you so much to work with, with a new audience, right? I mean, you know, if you're doing Cinderella, you're racking your brain trying to figure out how I'm going to do, do something that, that readers, you know, in, in English, don't already know. Yes. Um, and so I, I love that idea of um, of mining. I guess I'm, I made a pun, didn't I? Mining a this other um, uh, you know, culture. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll continue the mining metaphor for you. Yeah, mining right. a vein. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah, vein of, of Malachite. Um, <laughs> Oh, so you say in in Slavic folklore, the the female characters take a little more um, active role than than some of our others. Yes, often the female characters um, are very smart, very witty. Uh -huh. um, they might not have much political or social power, but they're able to use their intelligence to mm -hmm. outsmart the villains and even mm -hmm. sometimes upend the hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But this is not strictly, you, you've already used the term um, historical fantasy. Um, and this isn't strictly a fairy tale retelling because it very much is, is rooted in historical, what? I don't know if you'd say historical events, but certainly historical circumstances, right? You got the serfdom and you've got, um, I guess, is, is this, is it set in 19th century? Yes, it's set in a very particular place in time. Um, it's 1815. Uh -huh. um, and I focused on this very small area of the Southwest Ural Mountains that is really rich in local mythology. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, I had a very kind of a tight limit that I imposed on myself, but that actually helped a lot. Um, Tell me about that. The, how do those limits um, help? So a lot of fantasy writers, world building is a huge challenge. Um, mm -hmm. They have to just, they sometimes have to create their own languages. Mm -hmm. um, they have to decide how the magical systems work, all these things. Um, I did have to think through the magical system, but yeah. so much of it was already there for me. Um, uh -huh. I already had a language, Russian, you know, I tried to do, I had to just research what was already there. Um, this yeah. is right after Napoleon had invaded Russia. Um, uh -huh. So what was it like then? I read a lot of 
<laughs> so I read a lot of nonfiction uh -huh. um, documents on the lives of serfs at that time, surf narratives, things that um, have been recorded. And yeah. yeah, that helped because I had a particular place. I could be like, okay, what kind of fish lit would have lived in this lake? And yeah. what kind of trees would have been on this mountain? Yeah. Um, can I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, what's something from the historical research that you did that shaped the way you um, told your story? Is, is there something maybe that you would have you thought about doing that you realized you couldn't do because it couldn't have happened in 1815 in this little village in the Urals? Um, food. So okay. potatoes, which are a big part of the Russian diet now, you know, vodka, yeah. Um, yeah. potatoes weren't grown in that area until after the 1840s. Okay. So no potatoes in the diet. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you speak to, I, I don't know how to ask this question, but you, you have two sort of veins of storytelling, two veins of event to mine. One is the folklore, which isn't directly related to historical fact, but it certainly shapes the way people it thought about their world. And then you had historical fact. Um, I don't know what the question is, but I, I'm interested in, in the idea. You, you had to be familiar with both. Um, I guess it was, I guess it was almost like what would happen is it's a supposal. What would happen if in this village in the Urals in 1815, what if the, the fairy tales were actually true? I guess that's the supposal. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and that's why I love historical fantasy, because I believe that our world is full of wonderful, mysterious things. Um, I, I hope that my books can kind of reawaken some of that wonder, because yes, in some ways, this is like a real world story. And yet it's, it's a real world where there's these undercurrents of magic. Um, yeah. And these strange, fantastical characters in the bog and underneath the mountain. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I love that. Um, just the, the way that you receive and accept the limits, the historical limits, um, as a way. I mean, I, I I love those kind of. You know, I love those limits to say, I don't have to, the, the world is not completely open. I've got some limits and those limits aren't just limits. They're also saying, this is what I'm able to do, what I'm prepared to do. You know, the, the limits give you a way of, um, of leaning into what really is available to you instead of um, overwhelming you with a whole world that you can make up on your own. Right. I mean, yes. It is great. I have a fence around my playground. Yeah. <laughs> and Jonathan, like I learned that from you in a lot of ways through the habit membership. You talk a lot about leaning into your limits. And I have that on my bulletin board. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> because I need that. Um, yeah. Because it can be frustrating to be like, oh, I can't do this. And I can't. Now, it because it's historical fantasy, I can play with things a little bit. Uh -huh. um, but I have tried to keep the historical elements accurate as best I can. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, underground, you can do whatever you want to, right? But yes. once it goes underground and is in the <laughs> fantasy world, knock yourself out. Correct. Um, is this, is it a, do you think of this as a kind of, is it a 
portal. I don't guess it's a portal story, although there's kind of a portal. There's a there's an entryway into a fantastic from the real world to a fantastical world. Sure, in some ways, there's a door into the mountain, um, but it, it's a place where the these worlds are very thin. Like they're um, the enchantress can move in between worlds. Uh-huh. Um, some of the the fantasy characters have the ability to do that, and so I'd say it's more intermingled rather than a strict portal fantasy where our our characters come out of our very normal, very boring world into a world where everything mm-hmm. is different. Instead, uh, the world that they live in is a world that is full of magic, yeah. and they have to learn how to live within that and deal with it. Love it. Kind of like our world. Yes. Um, okay. So art, the artistic process is pretty important in this story. Right? You, you've already mentioned that your two protagonists are both um, artists um, who do more than one genre. You know, they're music, you know, uh, Peter is a musician and a carver and um, Lena is a, is a, I guess a drawer or a sketcher or a, what is, she, she yeah, carves. She, she draws, she carves, she loves to sing. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about that. Um, how did you end up writing about young artists? So, a lot of this comes from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a music major and an art minor in undergrad. And then I went on to get my master's in art history. Okay. And I've been able to use those both um, at certain times. And yet for years as a writer, I've joked about how, you know, oh, I should have been an English major. You know, uh-huh. why did I spend those years studying music, studying art history? Um, but it, it has all come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when I'm writing I'm constantly listening for the rhythm of the words, mm-hmm. um, the musicality of it, of the sentences. Uh, art history taught me to look carefully at the layers of meaning mm. and something. Um, and then just that whole world, the world of the artist. Um, it's a beautiful world because art has so much transformative power, um, but it's often a cutthroat world. You know, there's this, mm. Uh, tendency towards perfectionism and Mm -hmm. the way that our identities get so wrapped up in the things that we create. I see that a lot in the young artists, whether they're writers or musicians or visual artists um, that I am in contact with, that I mentor these Uh days. I I wanted to speak to them and Mm -hmm. to my younger self about that. um, Mm -hmm. You don't have to be perfect to make things that are beautiful and worthwhile. Mm, yeah, that's so good. Um, you you talked about the, the visual art, the the art history, seeing layers. Also, it seems to me one thing that, that I observe from your writing, and I I when you say you pay attention to the musicality and the rhythms of language, that's very obvious from your prose because it's your prose is so good, so solid. Also, your ability to see and to um, uh, to create really memorable visual images, it's it's really clear. So, so since you mentioned art, I want I wanted to um, to get you to talk about a particular image that really struck me, and I just wanted to hear about like how where this image came from. If, if hopefully you remember uh, your day of writing when you came up with this, um, and this is that image of the um, 
Lena, Lena's father, who works in a in a uh, what a foundry, so, mm-hmm. and um, and you talk about maybe his face kind of got melted like a <laughs> like something in a, in a foundry. Do you, do you have that readily available where you can read it? Um, and if not, just I the idea that his face was cast in, that his face was cast in reverse. Yeah, um, just like just like the molds that shape the copper there at the yeah. smelting plant. Actually, can I just so, read, can I just read these sentences because they're so sure, sure. If you don't have them uh, at, at your fingertips, I do. Lena sometimes wondered if the furnace had altered his features too, like the molds that shaped the liquid copper. His face seemed cast in reverse, with the curves and the hollows all wrong. A protruding forehead and sunken cheeks, flattened nose, and jutting chin. <laughs> That's just so visually compelling and memorable. Um, do you remember the day you wrote that? It could have been after a uh, field trip to Sloss Furnaces here mm. in Birmingham. Uh-huh. Um, Birmingham was built on the mining industry, just yeah. like the area that I'm talking about uh-huh. over in Siberia. Um, my husband's ancestors came here from Wales as coal miners. Uh-huh. Um, they supplied coal to the furnaces. Uh, you can still visit the furnace um, here in downtown Birmingham. And uh, yes, my children were making molds that huh. the, the, the molten iron was then poured into. Uh-huh. And um, that could have been the inspiration. Uh-huh. I just, I, it just kind of pulled me up short. I just loved it so much. Um, the you. idea of a, of a person who works in the foundry having a, a kind of melted face, which, you know, and, and which leaves us with the question was his face, you know, had it really been affected by his life in the, in the foundry or was that just kind of the way he always was? I, I just, like I said, I, I just loved it. So um, uh, I forgot. Yeah. Birmingham. It's a, it's a steel or it was a steel town. I don't guess it's a steel town anymore. Um, so there are connections then between uh, Birmingham. I, I started out by saying there are no connections between Birmingham and Siberia. And here you, here you say that there is a connection that, I, that I'd forgotten about. The more I researched um, the the history of mining in the Urals, the mm-hmm. more I realized that I had so much of a similar history all around me. Like mm. that, this area of central Alabama is littered with old stone quarries and abandoned mines and rusting furnaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> even our mountains have a lot of the same mineral composition. Really. As those Southwest Urals, um, which was just amazing because yeah. yes, I mean it's a lot hotter here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but so much was the same, and I, I could dig into um, as I dug into the stories of my husband's ancestors. I realized, like, oh, there were so many similarities. Huh. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you were. T- Sorry, go ahead. Nope, you're up. Just talking about how. Um, the work at the the smelting plant had affected Lena's father. Um, and then looking at the the old grainy black and white photos mm. of these men who who gave their lives to this very physical, very demanding and often demeaning mm-hmm. labor. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to show that. Yeah. Um, so we've got the the uh, sort of highfalutin art doings. <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got uh, miners. You're 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 doing all this. It's it's this whole world that, that you've uh, made here. 
Speaking of art, I, I do want to um, to talk about an idea that that I found very interesting, um, and that is that uh, as as Peter, if I'm pronouncing that right, Peter Peter, as he pursues his art, um, he's he finds himself in a situation where you know there's the offer of this sort of godlike artistic skill, but it comes at the cost of humanity. Um, and I don't, I don't want you to give away too much about the story, but whatever you, whatever you feel comfortable talking about, I'd love to talk about this idea of, um, well, let me just put it this way. It's it, the theme of creative young people, you know, opposing the oppressor, the sort of, you know, physical, physical oppression, is that's something that that comes up in in young adult teen stories sometimes uh what i appreciate what i appreciate about what you're doing here is you've got that theme but also a critique of the idea that that art can be an idol you know and that the young artistic person you've already mentioned and i want to hear more about your mentoring of of young people um but your critique of art. Um, tell me about that. Okay. Um, I was thinking some about the contrast between art and artifice. Mm -hmm. um, Peter wants, you can just say Peter, um, okay. he wants things to be easy. Uh -huh. um, his work is such a struggle. Um, and the the queen of the underworld is promising him uh, a skill where he he only has to think something uh -huh. to be able to to have it in physical form, um, which as artists, I've I've often thought, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Because I have these wonderful ideas in my head, <laughs> and, and what if I could just make those ideas happen just by thinking yeah. them? Yeah. Um, oh, but but that's not the way it works. Um, art is a struggle, and it's a, it's a back and forth between the material and the artist. Mm -hmm. And you're learning things from that, that hard struggle. You're learning things from the material, whether that's clay, you know, or yeah. if you're, you know, working through learning the technique of an instrument. Uh -huh. So I wanted to show that. Yeah. Um, and again, that idea of, of perfectionism, he, tr Peter truly believes that in order to, to earn the money that will win his freedom from serfdom um, and win Lena's freedom, he must create the absolute most perfect artwork the world has ever seen. Uh -huh. It's the only way. Uh -huh. It isn't the only way. Um, yeah. He starts valuing his art more than the people around him, the people who love him. You said he's valuing, he starts valuing the art more than he values the people who love him? Yes. And it's strange this need to be loved and admired by people who don't know us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, he wants the villain of the story to just be in complete awe of mm. his abilities. And then it's not really the villain's perspective that matters. Um, mm. Yeah. I, I'd never thought about the, the fact that um, if we could just execute, you know, you think it, and there it is. Um, that would be dehumanizing. Exactly. The, the language that you know. Well, it's actually from your 
um, your little synopsis from the uh, from your press kit. Um, but that language of um, it comes at the cost of his humanity. There's something humanizing about the struggle and the difficulty of doing the work. And as you said, that that shapes us. I can't remember, I can't remember the language you used, but that struggle in trying to make something um, shapes us. Um, yes, we shape the art, but the, the art also shapes us. Oh, um, yeah. And we are mm-hmm. we're human, right? We're earthy. We're made of the earth. And yeah. we need something of that that physical struggle with physical elements to become truly ourselves, I think. Yeah. Um, I was reading something just yesterday about the, the idea that the promise of AI is you get this stuff without it, without struggling, without trying, without going through any heartache. Uh, right. And what you Sounds get is wonderful. something that's, that's, that's <laughs> not very, that doesn't have much heart anyway. You know. <laughs> um, so good. Uh, there was, there was something else about that, that, that I wanted to, um, oh, well, I mean, just, just the fact that, um, I've been uh, reading back through The Great Divorce. That's another place where if you want a new house, you just think it and you get a new house. And that frictionlessness is what makes it help. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it the, breaks the fact, apart the community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so many good and interesting ideas. Um, tell me, you mentioned before that you are mentoring some some young artists. Tell me about that. So I work with a lot of young writers. I teach writing workshops in my local library uh-huh. um, for for tweens, like eight to twelve year olds, also for teens. Uh-huh. Um, and then with the homeschool co-op that I'm part of, I have often taught lessons in music and art, and I lead annual field trips to the uh-huh. local art museum. So I'm still uh-huh. getting to leave some of those things in. Yeah. Um, yeah. To what extent do you have the opportunity to speak to questions like perfectionism or um, the, I mean, it's one thing to help students develop their skills. It is another thing to think about how these skills fit into a larger life. I find that the teens are a lot more stressed out about that mm-hmm. than the tweens, the, mm-hmm. the eight to 12 year olds that I, that I work with. Um, they are a lot more willing to take chances. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're having creative brainstorming sessions together, they are much more willing to just throw out things that might sound a little weird. Um, <laughs> when it gets to the teens, um, they just feel a lot more pressure. Um, mm-hmm. They want, they're starting to think about, you know, how do I get published? And, mm-hmm. and how do I, how do I make works that lots of people will like? Yeah. Um, it, and that's that can be a little hard to break through. Yeah. Yeah. The the young person can say, I am absorbed in this thing I'm making. And and then you get a little older and you, you it's really hard not to think about what this thing is going to do for me or what the or, or what this is. It's just hard not to think about yourself when you're yes. older than about 10. <laughs> right. Which is why I know it's a successful workshop when the whole group of us end up just laughing together, you know, and encouraging one another, um, you know, Hey, that, that's a cool idea. I've never thought about that before, but you know, this could work. Yeah. Um, Um, you got a lot going on. We, you, you had to, uh, you know, we had to postpone, uh, our start just a little bit because you had to go get some, uh, 
taekwondo belts that uh that, that you that got left i mean you've got a very you get a lot going on where does the where does the writing fit into your how, how do you i'm always interested in knowing how people fit writing into their larger life sure um it has changed with each stage um mm-hmm. of parenting really um mm-hmm. i started i turned to writing because at that point i was teaching music four days a week Mm-hmm. Um, and my third child was on the way. My oldest was about to start kindergarten um, and had just been diagnosed uh, with being on the autism spectrum. Okay. So I, I could not sustain uh, the music teaching anymore. Yeah. I felt like writing was something that was more flexible, that I could kind of work into the margins of mm-hmm. life. Um, but it has changed. Like when the children were little, I would write during nap time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they drop their naps and it was writing in the evening. Um, mm-hmm. now they're starting to stay up later and have more evening activities. Mm-hmm. So it's weekends. Um, my wonderful husband every year takes the kids away for a weekend at least so I can just have some focus time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whenever I can, I've learned to take those little tiny slivers of time, uh-huh. um, and not wait for the big chunks because the big uh, chunks hardly ever happen. You may not get them. Yeah. Um, do, do you ha- are you part of writing communities? Are you uh, do you have a local uh, local group of uh, a writers group? Um, the Habit uh, mm-hmm. membership is my my best community. That's your, oh, okay. Um, I am part of the Alabama Writers Cooperative, which is a mm-hmm. statewide um, collection of authors, and the SCBWI. Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators um, for the Southeast. So that's a regional community Uh I'm part of. Um, Uh But as far as like true encouraging community and companionship, the habit membership has been best for that. Well, I'm glad Um, to hear it. I've learned lots of businessy things um, from the other groups, the business Uh side of writing, which is very important and the craft. Um, But as far as community, the habit's been great. Um, But also like, even though I don't have many writer friends here in Birmingham, I am wealthy in friends who just, who love to read books, mm-hmm. who love to make stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, that encourages me. Yeah. I think that that's so important too. I mean, just, just friendship, but it's great to have friends who, who write. That's nice to talk to them about writing stuff, but just having friends is so important to the creative life. Yes. Um, and People who can, you know, talk about, I mean, you got to have something to write about besides writing. Uh, Although the truth is a lot of my writing (laughs) is about writing, but, but, you know, ideally most of one's writing is not about writing. You have to, you have to have a a larger life. So, all right. uh, Talk to me about who are the writers who make you want to write? This is, here's our, our grand finale question. I always love hearing what people have to say about this. And I always love hearing what people have to say too. Um, (laughs) Lewis and Tolkien, they're my grandfathers. Um, McDonald too, George McDonald. Um, I guess he's your great-grandfather then. He's my great-grandpa, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait to meet them all in heaven and sit down and talk books. Um, But Robin McKinley really got me into fairy tale retellings. Uh Um, And she's a writer that I turn to whenever I need to be re-enchanted and remember Mm. why I'm doing this in the first place. I told you how I love fairy tales, but she was the first author I read who was taking fairy tales and turning them into novels, um, yeah. the novel's depth. I didn't realize you could do that until I read <laughs> Robin McKinley. Yeah. 
I'm curious awesome. since you're since we're on the subject, and we can get back to you. May have other writers too, but the you know a, a fairy tale tends not to depend on say psychological realism yes. necessarily, and then a fairy tale reteller. You know, if, if you're going to novelize a story, you better have some psychological realism in there. Um, I mean, is that? Do you think of that as the one of the central aspects of fairy tale retelling? Absolutely. So the fairy tale is the bones, uh-huh. and that's that's the skeleton, the framework that I'm working with. Um, but then in a retelling, uh, I think the author's job is to start asking all all the questions: Why did the character respond this way? Um, Mm -hmm. what was compelling him or her to act in that manner Mm -hmm. Um, and creating a whole bunch of backstory that may or may not actually make it into the book, but helps me understand my characters. Yeah. Have you ever found yourself in situations where you realize that, that the motivations of the character just don't from a, from a fairy tale, just don't make sense from a, from a psychological point. Yes. Yes. And, and then this, one of the fairy tales that I was pulling from uh, for the Carver and the Queen, um, the end result of the story is that the Enchantress um, basically says, oh, this was all a test. You passed. And then she grants the hero and heroine um, all these wonderful treasures yeah. for their trouble. Um, I did not see her in that light, like throughout the rest of the story and through through so many of the tales uh she is a trickster character. She uh-huh. um, she has a darkness to her. I didn't want this turn at the end where all of a sudden none of the things they went through really mattered. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. my ending is very different. Okay. Um, the Princess and the Pea is one that I've never the the I, I would like somebody to retell that fairy tale in a way that would make some kind of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> It won't be me. I'm sorry. I'm stuck in Siberia for the next few years. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Okay. Speaking of, this is, uh, this is not a standalone. This is the first of a trilogy. It's the first of a trilogy. So it traces this same family um, across three generations. So three different historical periods, um, but the same general setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, this family, their destiny is intertwined with this whole world of magic that they live in okay did i interrupt you when you you, did you still have some some writers make you want to write that you wanted to tell me about i just wanted to talk about poetry all right tell me more about writers make you want to write um well i'd have to say poets as well and Mm -hmm. that's a recent development for me Mm -hmm. um i would not have told you that a few years ago but i have a friend who's a poet she got me into reading poetry and now i need it and i love it Mm -hmm. and and I love what it does for my writing. Um, the way it opens up these windows in my imagination. Mm. Makes you read poems fun. most days? Uh, I try to read it before I go to bed mm-hmm. at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A poem or two. So, um, Mary Oliver. Uh, yeah. Mary Oliver. Okay. Malcolm Geith is amazing. Yeah. Lucy Shaw. Um, and then I've kind of been going back in history, trying to um, mine some of the the older poets. I uh-huh. really love Robert Frost. I love uh-huh. Hopkins, John yeah. Donne. Yeah. There's a whole Great. world to discover and I'm just on the edge of it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, 
Hopkins is one of those poets that when I get it, I love it. And then a lot of times I just don't get it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I still like, I still like what he does inside my head. Yeah. Um, Right. I don't like comprehend it. um, I feel like my mind is, my imagination is connecting things in ways that maybe my um, cerebral mind can't. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Emma Fox, thank you so much for uh, this talk. It's always a pleasure. I hope we get to talk again soon. I bet we will. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.